All right. Morning, everybody. My name is Jeremy. I'm pastor here, and uh, thankful. I'm thankful for all the elements of worship that this is uh, from beginning to end. There is, and hopefully you sense this. There is a movement uh, to this service. Uh, this is not only about what is spoken right now. It is about what the Lord's doing over the entirety of our uh, morning together and our experience together. So, uh, Janie and team, beautiful, beautiful job. Thank you guys. Uh, really teed this up. Um, because there, there is a sense where we're going to have to wrangle with some hard stuff today. And we're going to have to wrangle, one, with the difficulty of the, the Scripture that's in front of us, but two, we're going to have to wrangle with our own selves, uh, with our own hearts, with our own responses to this grace. So I had something planned, but I really think I don't want this moment to end. So let's go ahead and read the text together. Um, and I forget who that is that's coming up. So, Oh, Adrian, that's great. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And so St Stephen said, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles." The devout men buried Stephen and great, made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed, them, proclaimed to them the Christ, the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So... We had an old dog. Are my transitions into sermons great? Last week was especially surprising. Um, but we had this old dog named Hobie. He was named after the surfboard company. And uh, we were young parents. We had, all of our emotional energy was going towards these actual children. And so having another animal that acted like a child, we just couldn't handle it. So, but we really wanted a dog. And so we thought, okay, well, it just has to be like the exact right dog. And there was this dog that was, um, we were hanging out with some friends and this old, we, this indistinct age, he was just old. We're not even sure how old he was to this day. Uh, chocolate Lab, 
named Hobie waltzed into the room. Gray muzzle, he's got his, uh, his belly's kind of you know, rubbing the ground when he walks. He was, he was cresting 100 pounds. He's a big dude. But he was somewhere over 10 years old. He was definitely later on in life. He was slow. He slept all day. He wouldn't play fetch. He, he wouldn't play with other toys. He didn't bark. He wasn't aggressive. He was amazing. <laughs> and he was, he was the kind of dog that was the low ma- lowest of low maintenance, and that's exactly what we needed for that portion of our lives. And, you know, that whole, you can't teach a dog new tricks, like that was very much true of our dog, Hobie. And that's sort of, in some ways, what's happening here. There is, there is sort of the old guard that is having trouble handling some new tricks, there is, there is this sense of everything that we have staked our life on, everything that we believe to be true is now being shaken under us by this word of the Lord, that so-called word of the Lord that Stephen is bringing. And it causes an uproar to the point of literal murder. And there's two things particularly that they're so mad about. And those two things are the law and the temple. Those were the two things that set the bedrock foundation of Jewish life in that day. And those were the two things that at least what they were hearing is that those things are being challenged. But the point of the law and the temple was never to make a way to God. It was actually to prove that you can't get to God through those things. It was to show our inability and only in the fulfillment that's in Jesus can we come to God. Only in the fulfillment that is in Jesus can the law be kept on our behalf. Grace. Grace is the only way. Unmerited favor given to us by God is a free gift by faith in him. Is the only way that we can have any chance at being rightly related to God. And so when we come to that, even saying that out loud, there's still something in me that's like, oh, that's going to sting a little bit. That even stings when I say that for myself. There's two responses that can happen in our hearts, and you see them both in the text. Either grace opposing rage, which is what happens in the minds and the hearts of these Jews, or grace receiving freedom, which you see in Stephen. So those are going to be our two points today. First, grace opposing rage. It says, verse 8, right when we jump into the text, Stephen is full of grace. And the idea in the, the Hellenistic, the Greek culture that this word came out of, around that time, it was literally used as for times when a ruler was given, uh, demonstrating favor to their subjects. And so that word was taken out of Greek culture and beginning to be used as what the experience of these new early church Christians was. They were experiencing the great favor from the ruler, God Almighty on high, through the grace of Christ. And Stephen is full of this. It says he's full of the Spirit. He's full of grace and full of power. The Spirit was allowing and working on him to believe more and more into that reality, that there is a great ruler, that I cannot get to him, that he had to come to me. He was noticeably different. He was noticeably marked by that reality. This grace and this power was leaking off of him in the experience of the people around him. It's possible that even others in his, his own synagogue 
may be some of those that are coming after him today. But there was something about this new message that he was preaching that very much rubbed them the wrong way. But maybe you've been around somebody in your life that has just so oozed grace. And it's usually the people that have had some of the hardest stories, that have had some of the most difficult experiences, that there's something about those kinds of people that they just get grace in a way that I maybe never will. But I love being around those people. That's, that's what Stephen is like here. I had a friend uh, named Jeff who I worked with at, uh, at the church that I worked at in Atlanta. This big, bald, beautiful man. He had a big heart. He was fun-loving. He was loud. He had the like huge goatee and no other facial hair. He was just like a rad-looking dude. But he had a rough past too. And that rough past engaged grace in a reality that especially in my early believer stage of life at that point, I just didn't have a category for. Like you're telling me someone who is this broken, who had this and this and this happen in their story can now be beautifully ministering to these high school and middle school kids. He was so winsome. Like he was a kid magnet. Kids loved to be around him. I loved to be around him. The staff loved to be around him. But because of that, he was also kind of rough around the edges. Because of some of those experiences and even just some of who he was, he, he had some prickly parts about him. And those things would either draw people in or they would repel people. That's the experience potentially of other people as they <laughs> began to rub up against Stephen here. Because for people that are very proud of themselves, grace is real hard to swallow. If you've worked hard and earned everything in your life, then the belief that you don't have enough in and of yourself in the ultimate big picture success of being rightly related to God, that feels like there's something wrong. I've worked hard for everything I've ever done. Wouldn't God accept me? Like, what's wrong with him? How could he not? And the context here, remember, these are, these are Greek Jews, these are Hellenistic Jews who had moved from the surrounding area because of their faith. They had moved to Jerusalem. They wanted to be in the center of this, this, uh, this Judaic faith. They, they wanted to be in the center of the temple, in the center of following the law, in the center of that beautiful tradition and everything that it stood for. They had moved there because of their zeal. But now it was their zeal that was beginning to turn them on the very grace of God. So they were mad. It says, verse 13, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the temple. I'm sorry, the holy place and the law. This holy place, the temple, that was the place where they would go consistently. It was where the presence of God dwelt. It was, you had to go through certain rituals to get from one degree into the next, closer and closer and closer to where God dwelt. And in the same way, this, this law is the way that you did that. If the temple was where the presence of God dwelt, then the law was how you got there. It was how you moved from one degree to the next to the next, closer and closer to the presence of God. And now all of a sudden, Stephen comes in and he's saying, you guys, that was never the point. Those were not meant to be end-all be-alls in and of themselves. They were meant to point to something else. They were meant to, to point to something greater. They were meant to point ultimately to Jesus. 
And here comes Stephen saying every bit of this. Jesus has been the only way that God's presence now can dwell among us. And the only way to know that as God incarnate dwelling among his people, how do I know that he's not going to strike me dead right on the spot? Because that same grace that brought him from heaven to earth is also the same grace that brings him from out from himself to you. That brings him out of his holiness and into your sin. That's the only way. And that's always been the only way. And the Old Testament prophets and Psalms all the way from Genesis are all pointing that direction. But just like these guys, before we go throwing stones at them, because <laughs> they threw stones, uh, before we go throwing stones at them, like, let's consider our own hearts in this mix too. Where do we go when we get confronted with the reality of who we actually are and have to wrangle with that? Uh, John Calvin says that our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts. Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Now, why would he say that? He goes on later. We are accordingly urged by our own evil things to consider the goodness of God. Indeed, we cannot aspire to him in earnest until we have begun to be displeased with ourselves. And so the reason that Calvin draws together knowing God and knowing myself is not somehow to know like what Enneagram type I am and that's going to bring me closer to Jesus. It it has much more to, that wasn't a dig on the Enneagram, it has its place. More so to say, the goal of knowing yourself is knowing how far you fall short from God's holiness. Knowing myself shows me the problem, which is myself. And then I see the glory of God. And then I see Jesus dying on a cross, living a perfect life, raising again to new life, and then it begins to make sense. In other words, you are way worse than you think you are, but you're also more loved than you could ever dream. But when we fail, when we lose our temper, when we say something that we don't mean but kind of did and are just sort of accidentally said it out loud, uh, when we hurt someone's feelings, when we lust again, when we yell again, when we worry again, when we hate ourselves again or hate somebody else again, we go, oh, I did it again. Stop, Jeremy, stop, just stop. And then we wake up the next day and we do it again. And we wake up the next day and we do it again. And we can do one of two things with that. We can either quietly in our own hearts come to terms with that is really me or we can shh and we get busy and we get real proactive in our goodness in trying to to posture ourselves up before others maybe I don't like myself that much but maybe if other people do it'll make me like myself more or we put a bunch of good works out there in hopes that maybe we can sort of balance these cosmic scales of judgment that are against us Or maybe, like me, if you're in the middle of Publix and one of your children is not doing what they should be doing and you lose it on them right in front of all the box cookies, that's a hypothetical scenario. <laughs> you, you may find yourself more raging against that reality than living in line with it. Verse 53 and 54, this is right. So there's a big chunk we left out. 
And that's the whole chunk of Stephen's sermon back to those guys, which essentially they're, what they're saying, they're trying to trump up false charges, these Hellenistic Jews, and they're saying, he's speaking against the temple, he's speaking against the law, how dare you? And then they give him a chance to speak. And essentially what the crux of the sermon that he preaches is, is he goes, yep, true. A lot of those things, not in exactly the way you guys are understanding it, but yes, I am saying that the temple and the law was never the purpose. I am saying that Jesus is the purpose. And so the very last phrase of that sermon that we, we jumped over, he says, you who received the law as delivered by angels didn't keep it. Ooh. Like you guys have so postured yourself and pat yourself on the back that you're such good people, you're following the law. Yes, the angels delivered it to you. But no, you have not kept it. Now, when they heard those things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That's grace opposing rage. Happens in them, happens in us. Secondly, though, grace receiving freedom. Jump to that next verse, verse 55. But he, that's Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Wouldn't you like to see that? When the Jews saw their neediness before him, it repelled them away. When Stephen saw his neediness before this group of people that literally had rocks ready to throw them at him, it drew them into, towards King Jesus. Where right now are you the most needy? Where right now are you the most broken? Where right now are you the most exposed? Where are you right now the most surprised at yourself that you would still be struggling with the same thing over and over again? Where are you most tired of yourself? That's the place. That's the place where your eyes can be drawn up to see not yourself. Your, your eyes can be drawn past your circumstances your eyes can be drawn past your own neediness and lack to see King Jesus who does not lack. And instead of raging against those circumstances and those people that have brought you to that point of need, which is what we often do, how dare you expose me to me? How dare these circumstances in my life. It's the reason that I am how I am is because all these bad things have happened to me. The reason that I just raged on my kids is because of my kids. No, it's not. Lewis says there's already rats in the cellar. You just turn the light on. And so when the light gets flipped on, we have the opportunity either to look square at ourselves and cower in fear and rage against it, or to look up, to look up. And notice what Jesus is doing here. Most of the time, when we see every other time that I'm aware of where you see Jesus spoken about as at the right hand of the Father, he's doing a particular thing, and that is sitting. What is he doing here? I wish I was sitting so that I could stand for effect, but what is he doing? standing. And so there's this sense of Jesus has been sitting 
and ruling over all things at all times. And then he sees his son, his child, who he dearly loves, who he died for, and he stands up and says, not that one. That one, there is no accusation. There is no condemnation. Stones may touch him, but that even that will not separate him from me. And that, that same reality is true of us. Because when we lift our eyes to see King Jesus who is standing for us at the right hand of the Father, the temple and the law fall into their proper place. We see the presence of God now dwelling among us. And we see the law of God standing for us in the courtroom, the heavenly courtroom, saying, Jesus saying, every guilty thing they have done, every reason they should have nothing to do with me and I should have nothing to do with them, put that on me. And every good thing that I have ever done, every law that I have always kept being every bit of it, the only person in human history to ever have done that, that's for them. Me for them, them for me. When Jesus stands, that's what he's doing. This makes a couple of verses in Romans come alive. How about Romans 8, 34? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was, <clears throat> excuse me, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. That's what Jesus is doing right here. He is standing at the right hand of God saying, not that one. That one's mine. And that one's mine. And that one's mine. And that one's mine. That then begins to create a new kind of freedom in a person. Because when, when real grace begins to land on our soul, when we see that every worst case circumstance either that we perpetrate ourselves or that someone else perpetrates against us, even the worst of worst cases in your life cannot separate you from his love. Then that kind of grace begins to settle in and move through your heart and into your hands and pry them open. And say, if you want to put me in front of a firing squad, I'm there with you and you're there with me. If you want to put me in a difficult relationship, I'm there with you, you're there with me. If you want to put me in a, um, a life-changing diagnosis, I'm there with you. You're there with me. If you want to put me anywhere you want to put me, you're there with me. I'm there with you. And there's a courage, like this courage of Stephen, that begins to be birthed out of that. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or cancer diagnosis, or bankruptcy, hurricane, chronic depression, relational conflict, you name it. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. For all who have trusted in Christ, sitting in your seats today, whatever awaits you when you walk out those doors, whatever awaits you in five years, 15 years, 25 years, there is nothing that can separate you from his love. And the boldness that that can begin to create as you live out, outside of that, outside of yourself, 
not raging against all those things in your life that expose to you who you really are, but embracing those and saying, yes, I really am that bad. I really am all those things that you said about me and more. You don't even know the half of it. There's a beautiful freedom that begins to come over us and over our lives. If you've never read this book, you should. Uh, when I was a, a brand new Christian, this is the Ragamuffin Gospel by Brandon Manning. When I was a brand new Christian, somebody recommended this to me. And as one who loves to posture, as one who loves uh, to rage against all the ways that I could be exposed for being worse than I would like to be, this was balm to my soul. Uh, Brennan Manning was an ordained Franciscan priest. When he was age 41, he checked himself into a rehabilitation program for alcoholism. At 48, he resigned from the priesthood and married a single mother that he had met in the mid-70s. 20 years later, he divorced from her. And he died from Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, otherwise known as wet brain, from a deficiency of vitamin B going to his brain, blocked by all the beer in his system. And yet he was a beautiful, trophy of God's grace. Here's what he says. He says, Aristotle, Aristotle says I'm a rational animal. I say that I'm an angel with an incredible, incredible capacity for beer. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story the light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. As Thomas Merton put it, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. The grace of God nullifies our adulation of televangelists, charismatic superstars, and local church heroes. It obliterates the two-class citizenship theory operative in many American churches. For grace proclaims the awesome truth that all of life is gift. All that's good is not ours by right, but by sheer bounty of a gracious God. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ. And I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Jesus, thank you. That so cuts against the grain of my soul. It so cuts against the grain of what growing up I expected that I would become. It so cuts against the grain of what today, as I look at my tomorrow self, I expect that I will be tomorrow. I pray for us. I pray that we, you would softly and gently pierce us. Pierce us with the, the reality of who we actually are. But in the best kind of way, as you peel those layers off of us, as you expose to us the rawness of our very own hearts, would you then be the balm of our soul? Would you speak kindly to us? 
our gentle and lowly Savior. Woo us back to you again. Tomorrow we're going to run away again, like the prodigal we heard about earlier. Woo us back again. Look for us. Extend your hands to us. Welcome us with kisses and robes and rings again. Thank you that you do that for us this morning. Wherever we are, wherever we're coming from, if we've been a Christian for a long time or we're not even sure, you welcome us today by your grace. Welcome us now as we sing in Christ. Amen.